Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Progress City Radio Hour. I am Jeff Crawford, joined by my brother, Michael Crawford. Michael, how's it going this week? It's going great. Really excited to hear the rest of our town hall interview for this month. I know, like I said, if, well, first of all, if you haven't listened to part one, you should. So go check that out in your feed. Uh, even before that, we've been lucky enough to have Tom on all four of these Fantasyland episodes. But like I said in the last episode, these are some things that Tom's about to talk about that I had no idea about the genesis of. And Tom was involved in a lot of the projects in the later part of the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st century, uh, big parks and an interesting time for the Walt Disney Company. So we get some insight into that. Yeah, you make a good point. These were projects that I knew next to nothing about how they got off the ground. I feel like there's a period in the 80s and early 90s where Disney was super wide open about the creation of everything from Epcot to Disney MGM Studios to Paris. And they really threw open the doors and very widely publicized the process of what was going on. Then things got a little more quiet. Things got a little more secretive. And so things like Disney Studios Paris or Hong Kong, you you never really heard about what was going on and how that came to be. So it's really exciting to be able to document some of that. So without further ado, here is Tom. We talked about Paris and that fantasy land uh, previously on our on our last time out. Uh, but you also did some preliminary work on the second gate for Paris. Is that is that correct? Yeah, that was um, an interesting. You know, that was an interesting time. Another interesting time in the company that for me was more perilous than. Um, then the Michael Eisner coming on board in 1984 or the, you know, the, the raid, this Saul Steinberg raid and all of that was perilous. And then, um, then Michael and Frank came and things got better, but then around after Disneyland Paris opened, things got perilous again um, because Disneyland Paris was not an immediate success. And there was even uh, talk of it possibly closing. And, and as far as Peter Rummel, and other um, people high up in the organization were concerned. We were finished with theme parks. That the I heard a couple of times the market is saturated. The world market is saturated for theme parks. Um, putting any money back into Disneyland Paris is chasing good money after bad. All these things, and so. I was put on Disney Quest and Disney Quest was, you know, going to be part of a program of all sorts of different kind of regional entertainment things that were going to take the place of theme parks and rescue, you know, the company, rescue Imagineering. And so I was on um, Disney Quest, but at the same time, I was still doing um, not close out, but post Disneyland Paris Magic Kingdom, you know, the um, added attractions added capacity and then they were changing restaurants around you know ch changing merchandise locations into restaurants restaurants into merchandise locations you know oh, all really? the kind of things that happen in the first three or four years after a park opens um, as they adjust things and as i was out there on um 
continuous, it seemed like, business trips, uh, I got the notion that, you know, I, it was just my opinion that um, if they can't do a second park, because by then now the um, Euro Disneyland MGM studios had been shut down, that was to have opened, I think, like around 1997 or 96 or 97. And they had been working on it up through 93 or 94, and then it was just shut down. And then it's like, we are never building a second park. I mean, it was just plain and simple. I mean, maybe in 30 or 40 years, but not any time, you know, not in our lifetime. I heard that a lot too. Well, there would be that. It's like, okay, but there needs to be more things to do. I mean, if you want to increase length of stay, <laughs> you have to have more things to do. So I started working on an idea for just a big animation um, attraction that would be like a half you know, that would be like a water park, but they didn't want to do a water park. Right. So that, but this would be like the water park thing that you would spend two and a half or three hours at, and you wouldn't spend full, a full day's admission. You'd spend, um, you know, half the price or whatever. And so water park budget, water park ticket price, water park length of stay kind of a thing. And, but it, all indoors, um, and, and, and it's all celebrating animation because one thing I picked up when I was out there is that, you know, the French love animation, they love film and they love animation. And just about any day of the week in Paris, you can go to any Disney classic animated film will be showing in some theater somewhere in Paris because they have so many of these, um, idiosyncratic theaters there that are, um, you know, that show retro, you know, uh, films. So uh, it seemed like there was some kind of market out there that could increase length of stay and also reach out a little bit to the uh, local Parisians if you had regular animation festivals and um, showcases. Plus they had the Montreux studio already established. Disney had opened and was operating their own animation studio just east of the city of Paris, in between Paris and Disneyland, Paris. <clears throat> that was the Montreux studio and they were working on parts of Fantasia and um, they were working on, uh, I'm trying to remember now, I think they worked on maybe parts of Roger Rabbit and then I think they did pick up on a lot of the other different films, but it was a full-fledged, animation studio mm -hmm. so why not move it out to disneyland where people can see it and look into it like they were doing because it was still very popular at disney mgm studios in florida so basically do that in an even bigger way so that you're in this you know whole um world and world of animation kind of like the animation pavilion that ended up at disney's california adventure you know but even bigger you know with more things to do in it on a, on a drizzly gray day, <laughs> winter, you know, you, you could go out there and have a lot of fun and it would be very bright and very colorful. And you could um, also a great stop for um, schools, you know, school field trips, educational. And the Disneyland Paris management really liked that 
idea. They seemed to, at first there was like, no, no, no. And then they began to, you know, they were realizing this whole length of stay thing required more um, to be out there. And so what was a cost effective way of, of getting some other kind of attraction out there? All they needed to do was increase the length of stay from one day to two days or one and a half days to three days. I can't remember. There was some metric that was like, it shouldn't be too hard to do. Of course, you know, I'm taking it like easier than it really was. But um, so I started working on this idea. I got a little budget to do it. Uh, Nina Vaughn and some other people did some renderings of it and it started to gather interest. And then like so many half day sorts of things do, it starts to grow and it starts to grow. And, um, you know, I wish we had just said stop. <laughs> to do animation and see how that does and if it's popular then you could go into live action film and have another piece of it but this whole thing no we have to have gates and the gates have to be full priced so whoa yeah dark times so that, was, that was a messy thing that um i then got involved with all of it i mean you know we we did our best but the budget was the budget and we were building a theme park when they said they were not going to build any more theme parks. And, um, there were all sorts of other annoyances that, um, got us where to, you know, but a lot, you know, I think what was there was good. There just <laughs> was hardly anything there. Were you with that all the way through? Uh, up until about 2000 and then Paul Osterhout took over as I moved on to Hong Kong uh, so I wasn't there to do like installation or um, art direction or any of that, but I did make occasional trips out there, but um, you know, the budget was the budget and we couldn't build in the middle of it because there was some statutory thing with the government and some building established building thing that had to be resolved and couldn't be resolved, you know, until the year 2000, whatever you know <laughs> 2010 or something so you couldn't build in the middle of it so we were building along this ridiculous boomerang shape yeah um but i think cinema chic came out i mean the things that were there were pretty good the animation pavilion was good although i would have liked to have have more stuff in it uh cinema chic came out great and that stunt show was spectacular and we got rock and roller coaster in there um, and the tram tour for a while. I thought the tram, I thought we should have done to the tram tour what Universal does with their tram tour and keep adding to it. So there's always something, you know, every year there's a new um, crazy pearl along the necklace of, you know, things on that mm -hmm. tram route. Uh, but I don't know how much of that they did. Um, now, I know they didn't do anything for the first five or six years. So it was, you know, for me, it was frustrating because I had a lot of ideas and the team I was working with had a lot of ideas, but we were always kind of, um, you know, hemmed in by budget or, or differences of opinion about what should be there. Yeah. Well, I would imagine it was incredibly frustrating because even from the outside people, you know, those of us who were, following everything at the time it was a a dark time so i i would imagine being on the inside would have been very frustrating and yeah 
Uh-huh. It was a fun project researching. I mean, we we went to every film studio, it seems like, in Western Europe and in Berlin. In fact, there were three, I think, in Berlin that we went to, at least two. Um, you know, one of them was a very, very historic film studio, Babelsberg. And they were just, oh, all sorts of wonderful ideas we came up with. You know, sometimes you see things that are lameish, but you think, oh, if they had only done this and added that, it would take an taken it out of lameishness and, yeah. you know, turned it into something extraordinary or magical. Um, but it was just, uh, it was frustrating. So you mentioned that you worked on Disney quest yes. and I did not know that. And that is something that doesn't get talked about a lot and it should be uh, something. I don't know really anything about the process behind that. So, you know, what can you tell us about that? Well, I uh, started working on that. Let me think when that would have been. 95, probably. Um, Joe D'Annunzio was a newly um, appointed vice president of um, development, I think. Um, And he was put there in place. I think he was, um, Joe was with strategic planning, if I'm not mistaken, over at the studio. Um, but really preferred kind of the wed um, imagineering vibe and was selected to be kind of the business, um, a business developer for new projects. And this was during the era of we're not going to do any more theme parks. We're finished with that. Hmm. Uh, But we will consider doing, um, and this is an, Imagineering saying that this is kind of a, an arm of the corporate company saying that, um, but uh, we'd like to look into these regional entertainment opportunities. And at that time, that meant like, what, what's that? Well, that's a thing like you know, Dave and Buster's, but better. <laughs> that was really yeah. the only you know um, analog out there, I think, at the time. Although there were some other. Um, projects in the works like Sony and um, you know, Sony's big, I forgot what it's called, but it eventually ended up in San Francisco. Uh, And I think they had a version of it in Berlin, but these were, you know, regional entertainment opportunities to bring a little bit of Disney to your town, but not a theme park, um, but something else. So um, ESPN, uh, began to be developed and, but Joe was really interested. I think someone else took on the responsibility of ESPN. Uh, but Joe and I worked on this idea, um, for, you know, a Disney theme park in a box, but, um, leveraging off of gaming and video games. And I believe it all came about Possibly because it was either Nintendo or Sega was interested in um, a partnership. So it would be leveraged, you know, with a a big player. Oh, yeah. And so the idea is that it would premiere at Walt Disney World, but then eventually go on um, to major cities in the country and then major cities around the world. That's amazing. Yeah. And what, what was kind of funny about it was that I had been really into video games when they first came out. This is at the end of the seventies and the beginning of the (laughs) eighties. And so I had become like, you know, 
a jock at a couple of the games, Battle Zone, if you remember that one. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, yeah. I was so good at that. Um, and oh, Galaga, Galaga, Gal- Galaga, yeah, Galaga, yeah, Galaga, and um, Targ. I wasn't so good at Targ, but I was addicted to it. But <laughs> Battle Zone was really the one I I got really good at. Um, you know, beating a lot of the scores wherever I went, whatever machine I went to. Um, and then I like, you know, when I started um, getting involved, let's see, it must've been after Epcot. Then I, I guess I just, you know, stopped. It was funny because video games, they had video games in the bowling alley next to Imagineering. And we'd go in there during our breaks back in the day, you know, when nice. we took breaks at 10 and three. <laughs> um, <laughs> but once Epcot was open, you know, I was so busy. I never had time anymore for breaks. So I stopped playing video games at that time. And so I had lo- kind of lost touch with the whole video game world. So I thought it was kind of a, an interesting selection that they selected me to um, work on this. But then again, there wasn't anyone else that was any more experienced with them <laughs> uh, yeah. in the building at the time, except Joe. Joe's younger than I was. So um, we just started thinking about what we could do and we took a trip and I, and I was working with Jan Circus on this at the time who was one of the creative vice presidents I just you know started thinking and Jan and I just started thinking about what kinds of cool places you know how can we take this thing but make it into a, a cool kind of a place because that's what it's going to be at the end of the day is a place that you want to return to that's always what it is right it doesn't well- you know, it could have the most amazing technology in the world, but if it isn't a place that you feel comfortable going to, and remember, most arcades were not comfortable places, right? Yeah. Unless you were 13 years old. <laughs> well, I think that's what's. It probably benefited the project you not knowing what was possible because it was way ahead of its time. Like it was. I remember going the first time, and you know, as someone who had been raised in arcades. And it was pretty mind-blowing experience just from the moment you went in, uh, the elevator ride up to, to yeah. you know, wherever you went in. Uh, right. it, was, it was a pretty remarkable technical achievement for the time. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I was doing that concurrent with um, still following up on Disneyland Paris post-opening attractions and changes and modifications and that sort of thing. And we were finishing up the added capacity program. So I benefited a little bit by being able to um, benchmark, if you will, whatever interesting um, kinds of um, new places were sprouting up in Paris and London and other big cities in Europe. And they had, or they were actually in the process of still building it, but someone gave me a tour of it while it was in process was a huge arcade in um, just off of Piccadilly Circus in London. Can't remember even what it was called, uh, but it was like five or six stories. And then it had a big escalator that went up through the middle of it. It was kind of open air and you would go past the different levels. And, um, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't really creatively, there were some neat little effects in it and some neat little kind of show busy things, but there wasn't an attempt to, to create kind of an organizing principle behind it um, or go 
much further than a typical arcade, other than you could tell they were spending more money on lighting and materials and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And, and it didn't, you know, it wasn't, it felt a little more comfortable as a place to go into. It didn't feel like, you know, um, like a typical arcade. So, um, so we had that to kind of benchmark with, and there was also a similar thing in Paris. I can't even remember. Um, I'd have to go back through my notes and everything to see where all, where this was, but they were building something similar. Oh, the one in um, London was called Trocadero, I think, or as part okay. of the Trocadero complex. But, um, and then we decided that um, we would go to Japan to see the um, installations or the, or the facilities that Sega had created called Joypolis. Um, there mm -hmm. were, I think two of those and, and then there might have been another one. Um, I think this might have been, you know, I, I remember taking two trips to Japan. So the first one might have just been to see Joy Palis and talk to the people at Sega. And um, so I think that first trip may have just been Joe D'Annunzio and myself and going through Joy Palis and writing everything and experiencing everything. Writing meaning there were a couple of... Um, of games that were set up on rides. So if you remember the Astro Blasters at Disney Quest with the basketballs, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, would shoot at one another. It was it was a, a takeoff on this attraction that um, was similar to that. It was a bumper car that was enclosed with plexiglass, and it scooped up tennis balls on the on the floor and you shot the tennis ball and they were fluorescent, I think. And so, and it was lit by black light. So you went into this dark space and you shot out these tennis balls um, at people. And then the, the, the um, plexiglass paneling on the sides was encrypted or somehow, you know, smart. So it knew kind of, um, it was able to score, you know, it was able to, to um, oh, wow, create yeah. scores based on that. So, you know, we, we liked that idea. We knew it was kind of a technology that we could start with um, and not completely invent. And um, so, and then there were some other interesting things, including the most popular thing there seemed to be a horoscope attraction where it was a theater show, kind of think Future Choice Theater. Yeah. For Future Choice Theater. And it, because there were, I believe there were, there was some kind of interface um, at the chairs and, I think they would ask you questions that were um, kind of Myers-Briggs uh, style questions. And then they would probably select certain seats to, to do a thing where here's your, you know, ideal boyfriend. Um, <laughs> this was something that was really popular with the That's women great. who had yeah. um, the extra time on the weekdays um, to go there because that was a big thing that, like office girls and office secretaries there um, huh. would do on their lunches, breaks, or after um, after work. And then it was big, of course, on the weekends. So this was really big, but it was, it was popular with the guys too, but especially popular with the women. And it didn't involve any kind of, you know, hand-eye coordination or, you know, video game skills. And so we found that to be very interesting um, and, and, you know, interesting in how popular it was. And you also got a, a horoscope at the end um, mm. of the attraction, a takeaway with it. And there were some other, you know, there was a, some sort of a simulator scoring thing. 
And um, so anyway, we found all that interesting and we met with some people at Sega briefly um, and then came back and then started in earnest. And I think that's maybe when Jan came on board and, um, and then after Jan uh, was Larry Gertz and then Joe Garlington. So now this is a, a design process that went on for two or three years and was yeah. incredibly comedic and frustrating at the same time because um, this was when very senior management was going through some growing pains. Um, one was with the loss of Frank Wells. And so um, the, it just, you know, the ship was not as steady as it was. Um, and so there were folks, there was a division called strategic planning and, and, people hated strategic planning because they were the bad guys, right? Um, you know, they're the money MBAs from Harvard and all of this, but I got along decently with them. Um, but, you know, there were some just some crazy um, notions that would run through that. Uh, like uh, one of the things that I was very um passionate about was that this be zoned like Disneyland, but we can make it completely different. We don't have to follow the, you know, old rules. We can be inspired by the old rules. So let's not um, make the zones based on um, geography or time. Let's make them based on, on psychographic, I guess, you know, psychographics like on, on, I, I was saying, let's make them verbs, not nouns which later became a big deal, uh, but it had never had not been done at that point. And so people tend, people meaning management tended to either be really scared or really excited about that. And, but what they weren't, ex what, what the new people weren't excited about was nostalgia. And one of the zones was based on video games of the past of you know the 70s 80s and 90s right. and even even some carnival stuff you know from the 50s and 60s so that there could be a pinball um section or something based on pinballs anyway and um you know you'd have pong and atari but you do reinvent them in different ways so it's the old thing but you know done on a wall you know instead of on a you know a little monitor and then it was also simply bringing back you know, some of the great games from that era, but, but really kind of inventing some new, you know, like a new way to do whack-a-mole. And so I had the notion of this is like a, an arcade on Mars. Imagine if there's a carnival or an arcade or a, or a games of skill, you know, set up, but it's on another planet with aliens. Uh, because um, Toy Story had just come out. So that was like another opportunity to fold that into this area and boy we had fights about that because we were bringing back something old instead of you know new 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 it's like but it, you know it most of this is new it's it's something old that's brought back in a new way um and it finally took marty you know to kind of remind them and tell them the story that i guess he went through with general electric when they were all done with um writing and programming and um and doing that show and they showed it to some high executive at ge before it was ready to be shipped to new york and the executive said well this is all about the past 
and we oh, want to sell our current, you know, dishwashers and toaster ovens and refrigerators, etc. Yeah. And I guess Walt Disney, you know, put him in his place and said, listen, I've spent, you know, my whole career in the past and the present and in the future and blah, blah, blah. And I know the audience and I know what it's going to like. So if you don't like the show, you can, whatever Walt would say after that. <laughs> well, Marty yeah. retold that story and uh, for the time being, uh, it made them comfortable. It ended up being, I what I always heard was it was the most popular space in the, I don't know if it's more popular attraction, but it, it was the space that people spent the most time in. And um, anyway, so that was that. just one of many battles uh, because, because um, we were tasked to do something entirely new yet when we would do, when we would propose something entirely new, there was, and I'm talking about people, not at Imagineering, but people at um, the studio at the time, who were supposed to be the adults in the room and they would, you know, say, well, then they'd fall back to, well, wasn't that tried 20 years ago and it didn't work. Didn't you, you know, uh, we need, we need to know, we, we need to be comfortable knowing that people are going to do this thing, you know, and if it hasn't ever been done before, how do we know that? Okay. So <laughs> go back and forth, you know, and you show them something that's been done before. And it's like, well, this has been done before. Oh my God. This was like the first project I worked on that was like that, where you, you go back and forth and back and forth. And this, you know, was a challenging time in the company. So it took two or three years to sell this idea finally to the board of directors uh, and, um, and to, to treat, I can't even say it, strategic planning. Um, they were the people that kind of, you know, green lighted things. I mean, ultimately it was Michael and Frank and then Michael and briefly Michael and Mike. Um, and for a little while it was Michael and um, Litvak. What was his first name? Mm. Um, Stanley? Stanley, yeah, Stanley. Stanley Litvak. So for a while there, it was actually Michael and Stanley. They were kind of the final green or red lights, but they're looking at the red or green light that strategic planning has created. Um, so this just took a long time. And I remember on one of the middle iterations of this, so this is now 96 or 97. And also I think uh, I'm trying to remember then Jan Circus left that project and it was Larry Gertz and, um, Joe Garlington. So I, I was then working with them and Gosh, I'm just trying to remember all of the uh, convolutions. But one of the funniest convolutions <laughs> was that um, we had created an idea, you know, um, sample boards, or what do you call them? Um, style, style boards um, to give a sense of, you know, that not only are there new things in here, but I mean, stylistically, it's different too. It's not like anything that Disney had yet done. And if you remember the nineties, there was, I don't even know what the name of the, of this movement was. It wasn't postmodern or maybe it was a subdivision of postmodern um, or, you know, it wasn't Memphis. It was beyond that. 
that was earlier. But when everything, instead of being a straight line, it's a crooked line, you know, mm-hmm. instead of being, you know, it was plump or, um, and it was fun, you know, it, it, it was, it was different. And I remember the contemporary hotel had, um, brought in a little bit of this mm-hmm. flavor and, and some of the, it was starting to creep in from places that were niche to more mainstream. And I liked a lot of it. I, you know, it was just fun and it had motion, you know, um, a handrail that, you know, things were zigzaggy or, uh, sine wavy yeah. and not straight anymore and different materials and sometimes used materials done in a new way or new materials done in an old way, blah, blah, blah. And so I'm just throwing all this stuff out. And it was Peter Rummel who looked at these boards and went, this is, you know, I appreciate that you guys are trying to do something new, but this stuff is really niche. This is, this is something, you know, you're going for, the five percent, not the ninety-five percent. You know, this is something that you guys like. I'm, I'm assuming, but this isn't our guest at Walt Disney World. And some of those pictures were the Contemporary Hotel. <laughs> oh wow! Yeah. Oh man. And some of them, you know, were South Coast Plaza, uh-huh. and you know. Very Too mainstream niche. places, yeah, and uh, and that meeting went off the rails. I remember, and so then there was um, another one, you know, the kind of the last chance, uh, the third at the bat, um, and uh, we sold it. We sold it then, wow. and. Um, and and we had that by this time we had created the zones the elevator idea, um, and because Joe Garlington knew his stuff, we had viable attractions that were new and innovative, but but doable. Because mm-hmm. um, God knows we also had you know we brought in. Um, we brought in a lot of outside thinkers and new thinkers, but they didn't have, you know, um, practical uh, knowledge of, first of all, there's the technical practicality, but second, there's the, what is the, how is the guest really going to interface with this? And that's yeah. what, where Joe Garlington really excelled um, because he knew and had, you know, was a studier of guest behavior um, after all these years at Epcot, you know, he did not design the first round of um, interactive games at Epcot. Those were all done by different organizations. And then he saw how people really responded to them and learned from that. And um, so I think thanks to, to him, it really suddenly became a very viable proposition with um, specifically, you know, we had 10 or 12 sort of marquee attractions, including um, I had come up with a design and ride your own coaster. Yeah, um, that was wild. That was yeah, it was one. really mind blowing. It was so wild yeah. that I only wrote it a couple times. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you had to be careful. Yeah. yeah. Uh, 
And I'm trying to think, you know, so we had that, we had a simulator game in the score area and we had, um, oh, that kind of pinball-ish machine um, uh-huh. with a big screen and the motion base stations. Oh, right. I'm yeah. forgetting the names of all these things. I'm going to have to go back and do my homework because it's been a long time. And the little thing with the remote controlled Jeeps. In the yeah, that was yeah I forgot about that one. Under the floor. Yeah. And I think once yeah. we got, once we got there, to that point, then I moved on um, to the next thing, and and they finished the project up, and um, so that was uh, so that was that. Yeah, <laughs> that was such a fun three or four crazy years of uh, trying to sell something, and um, you know sometimes going around in circles. Right. Yeah. I mean, there were things there that you couldn't do. Uh, I always felt the roller coaster was a natural um descendant of computer coaster at epcot but for real you know you could really really do it and uh i remember the lightsaber thing the non-lightsaber lightsaber game that was a lot of fun and yeah uh, yeah, the pirates you know the pirate cannon thing which was something else before that was was so cool the hercules one was great too yeah yeah the alien encounter tie-in right Yeah. yeah right and then I had done some proposals for the building, but they didn't buy. They didn't buy those. I was a little disappointed because I, I felt that there was a premise there of you know theme park in a box. You're going into a you know, and the, and the building is the berm, but um, they were also missing an opportunity to make the building active and kinetic, mm, mm. yeah, and to um, relay at a glance what's inside without having to explain it, which is kind of a basic tenet of design, right, right. any design. And um, I, there were some folks that I battled with a little bit because they, they became entrenched with this idea. And I, you know, it was Joe and I who had come up with this idea of a theme park in a box and the building's the berm. But then the next group was like, okay, you know, they just like bought it, like, you know, born again. <laughs> and, and they wouldn't let go. I'm like, okay, but it would be cool to have something else, you know, outside that you can see, or, you know, some porousness so that you can, or some translucency to it. And no, 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 you said theme park in a box. And then that's what it's going to be. <laughs> and I was very disappointed with the building. And, um, and I saw that being designed and I came up with some counter proposals for it and built a model and everything. And by then they had established the budget and um and so it was a no-go for for that yeah uh so the idea was that it was then going to open in chicago which it did and from chicago go to mm, philadelphia or pittsburgh i think and then san francisco it's funny there's a san francisco kind of connection to how to how disney quest ended up being laid out physically which was there was an old store i had i had i have relatives up there so while i was up there Early on, I had caught wind of the fact that an old, um, venerable department store called the Emporium was closing after Mm -hmm. 100 years or whatever it was. And it was this old building on uh, Market Street, I guess, near Union Square. And it was a five-story building, I believe. And it had a big open center to it, big open core. 
And it was very cool going up the escalators because you could kind of, you know, um, see by going up the escalators where everything was. Mm-hmm. And it just had a, you know, a nice feel to it. It, it felt exciting when you walked in in the middle of it, you know, because you looked down and you looked up. And then they did like a Christmas park on the roof every Christmas time. They had like, oh, wow. a, and so I told Joe, I said, you know, he had reasons to go up there several times. So I said, check out this Emporium place. And I think he did. And it's like, yeah, that's kind of like, that's how we should maybe think about laying this thing out. And it is how we ended up laying it out. It was the big open core in the center. Yeah. 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 Five stories. And, um, but you couldn't look in. I was, I it was disappointed. You know, they blocked it off. They were taking this berming idea way <laughs> too seriously. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. we're going to go up in the tree house and then we're going to put um, a big um, tent around it so that you can't see <laughs> it, the Matterhorn or the castle because you're in adventure land. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's very inward facing for sure. Yeah. Um, so I wished I had stayed on maybe a little bit longer to um, influence that. But, uh, oh, and then Tom Gillian did that beautiful, beautiful uh, rendering of what the center of it would, before the term steampunk had um, become coined. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had kind of that um, armillary sphere. Oh, yeah, yeah. In the center of it. And um, so... That's Disney Quest. And then I went there shortly after opening. I think by that time, they almost forgot that I had worked on it. I had to call <laughs> Joe D'Annunzio and have him call the manager. So I could oh, get wow. In. Yeah. Uh, I think in. I missed the opening because I was probably doing something in Europe or something at the time. So um, it's one of those kind of uh, melancholy situations, you know, mm-hmm. where at the end, you know, you're forgotten. <laughs> Well, that's an occupational hazard in this business. Yeah, truly. Yeah. The forgotten men of Imagineering. Mm -hmm. Well, you go from this period of um, we're not going to build any more theme parks to building one in Hong Kong. And you were obviously heavily involved with that. How, How did your role in that emerge? And, you know, how did that project emerge from this period of, you know, we're done? Well, it emerged from being a location-based entertainment, or we called them LBEs, and then they became RD&Es, I guess. Um, So the idea was, you know, um, some other team had worked on an idea, and I think Joe Lynn Cicero was involved. Um, And it was, you know, is there some kind of entertainment um, in a tent, in a, in a cool tent, you know, um, that can be brought or travel around to different cities. And so they tried it out in Phoenix and I think it was a big success. I can't remember the name for the life of me, How Weird. what this thing was. It opened in Phoenix. We went and saw it. Um, and right after it opened in Phoenix, they wanted to try it in Hong Kong. I think I've got the story straight here. Again, I my attention was elsewhere at the time. Yeah. Uh, so, but I know that um, Joe was working on this this um, project, and I'm pretty certain it did actually open in Hong Kong, and it was very successful. And from that, they thought, well, we should think about doing a permanent 
um, LBE in Hong Kong. And then I think just from there, it's just kept growing. I think the opportunity, there was some, you know, at the time Universal was sniffing around um, Southeast Asia. So this could have been some kind of a thing where, okay, Universal, if you're going to do something here, we're going to do something there. And so there was some kind of shifting around um, of looking at locations like Singapore and Shanghai. And, you know, ever since um, Frank Wells came on board, he had wanted to look at China, Beijing or Shanghai. And so that was still kind of out there, even though we weren't going to build any more theme parks, maybe we would do this one more in a country with um, 7 billion people or whatever it is. (laughs) Uh, Well, it's not 7 billion, but it's a lot. And uh, so that was happening. And so Universal and Disney are sniffing around and Somehow, I guess they, you know, some team started working on a small, small park for Hong Kong, or maybe it could go in Singapore. But at some point, um, discussions began with the Hong Kong government, and it became kind of a more and more attractive proposition, but it was still a small park. Um, But it had grown to, I would say, a half a day park. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting because I was working on what I thought should be a half a day park for Paris that they were saying, okay, it is a half a day park, but we're going to call it a full day park. <laughs> <laughs> and uh-huh. in Hong Kong, they're working on something that they want to call a half a day park. And I wasn't paying any attention to this park. I had my own half a day park. <laughs> to deal with. And around 2000, um, I think it was 2000, yeah, Marty asked me to go to Hong Kong with Wing Chow because they're going to have a meeting with the Hong Kong government about this project, which had, um, you know, was in the, in the process of being developed. And I knew nothing about the project. I knew nothing about (laughs) Hong Kong. (laughs) Um, I knew nothing about the Hong Kong government, any of that stuff. And I'm on a plane, you know, heading out there a little bit with some trepidation because I, um, I didn't know anything about Hong Kong. So I guess my exposure to Hong Kong was like, you know, the man with the golden gun and (laughs) (laughs) things like that, that made it all seem like it was kind of a dodgy place, but it was wonderful. It was, you know, I couldn't believe it when I got there, the hotel. And um, it was, you know, just imagine a clean, high tech, futuristic city. And it's attached basically to a jungle, you know? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, with monkeys. Well, maybe I'm exaggerating that. There were monkeys in the zoo and there may have been some monkeys that escaped the zoo. I seem to recall <laughs> monkeys, but <laughs> oh, and there was a little, uh, there was a little um, kind of aviary behind the hotel. Uh, well, I fell in love with Hong Kong and it's like, this is a project I'd like to work on. But as when I got back after that project, 
uh, back to the States to kind of get in the middle of it. It was like, oh no, this is another one of those. Um, why isn't it bigger? Okay, we'll make it bigger. How come it's so big? Okay, we'll make it smaller. Why is it so small? Yeah. How come it's not Chinese? Okay, we'll put some Chinese into it. Why is there Chinese here? The Chinese aren't coming to see Chinese. Okay, we'll take the Chinese out. You need some kind of a nod to the Chinese culture. Okay, we'll put something in. Take that out. Why is that there? It's Chinese. Oh, my God. We don't want anything old in this Disneyland part. Well, Disneyland has old things in it. Well, we don't want old things. Okay. Um, so this was a park that had Adventureland, Fantasyland, I think it had Tomorrowland and a sad excuse for a main street, two blocks, mm, like no yeah. city hall, no opera. And then only two of the four blocks. Oh, wow. And then Fantasyland was, or it had been, and I wasn't the one who changed it, but it had been um, proposed as in the style of it's a small world to be something completely different. And I thought that was kind of an interesting idea. But by the time I had gotten it, someone had decided, I think it was Pressler, that no, it's gotta be a castle park, but it can't be an expensive castle. It's gotta be the um, Disneyland castle that everyone loves. And I like the Disneyland castle. So, I'll, you know, I'll, I could buy into that. It really should be its own unique castle, but in my opinion, but I was the latecomer to the table. <laughs> and was trying not to make too many waves. Right. And, um, you know, and I understood what the challenges were and what the attendance projections were. And so, um, and I was working alongside of a very good guy named John DeSantis, who was uh, one of the most supportive um, producers uh, that I ever worked with. And um, he had worked um, a lot on the, uh, Disney Studio Tour in Florida and um, opened up the the El Capitan and the um, other one down the street. <laughs> oh my God. The brain. It'll just pop into my head in a minute. And he had also done the new theaters for the Disney theatrical group. You know, the um, theaters that they were building oh, yeah. um, around the world to have Beauty and the Beast and then Lion King and stuff like that. And, um, and so um, we worked to make this, to get this park. Cause they said, we're going to, we're now going to call it Disneyland because it was being called Disney's magical experience or Disney's magical Asian park or something <laughs> that was generic. That wasn't Disneyland. And they said, we're not going to call it Disneyland. You know, it has to have a certain scope to call it Disneyland. And so with, with um, little like bird droppers, you know, slowly, 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 <laughs> um, we were all like adding things, hoping um, that this thing could be called a Disneyland. And um, at some point they decided they were gonna call it Disneyland. Actually that point came, was before I started. It was already Hong Kong Disneyland when I started, it had just been decided. And I guess that's why maybe Marty selected me because um, I had the Disneyland DNA hmm. perhaps. So um, there was no river in Adventureland. There was no Frontierland hmm. and there was no 
river in Adventureland. There was no Jungle Cruise. It was the Temple of Peril and the Legend of the Lion King show, which had opened up recently at Walt Disney World and some things. And then um, Fantasyland had the castle, but it didn't have any of the castle attractions. It had um, Toontown behind it. Oh, huh. And Tomorrowland, I'm trying to remember. Um, yeah, there was, I think there was Tomorrowland because we'd put Buzz Lightyear in it. And we only wanted, or someone only wanted new things in it. So Fantasyland would have the PhilharMagic. Um, and not, it's a small world. Um, not Snow White, Pinocchio, Peter Pan, or Mr. Toad. Well, I can understand Mr. Toad, maybe, although that's my favorite of the dark rides. But you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. the other films had been at least released in Hong Kong, you know, so it wasn't that they weren't um, familiar with, with uh, especially Peter Pan being a, a, a British story and, you know, Hong Kong having been a British colony, there were so many expats living there. So, um, and it's such a popular attraction, but they decided, no, it'll be Winnie the Pooh, which was fine. Uh, and then Toontown, which made no sense. So <laughs> John and I had some work to do to kind of pull that um, together. And since the, um, you know, the kind of the buzzword du jour was this will be, you know, Walt's Disneyland. You know, this is going to, we're going back to our roots. And that's why we're going back to the original Main Street and the original castle and, um and, you know, I'm sure that the budget had something to do with that, but you know, I was okay with all of that. So, um, and then someone proposed Space Mountain, which was a great idea, because uh, that's, you know, that is a staple attraction. Um, but the person, this was like one of the folks that, one of the influencers that wouldn't typically have been an influencer, <laughs> uh, <laughs> said, but we're doing rock and roller coasters. So can we just do rock and roller coaster and call it Space Mountain? Ooh. Oh, gosh. Ooh. So again, kind of this weird, you know, logic that you didn't want to be disrespectful to. But like, oh, boy, how do I, you know, how do you explain? You know, <laughs> Space <laughs> Mountain's got to be Space Mountain. Um, yeah, I, I guess you could use the rock and roller track, but now you're going to have to make the mountain different. And that's yeah. a new design. And I heard that we didn't want to do new um, designs. Mm -hmm. So the suggestion was, we'll do rock and roller coaster and just paint Space Mountain on the four sides. And I, okay, I'm about ready to give up. Um, <laughs> that was one of the trying moments, you know. Um, so, but we moved ahead and I had really good support from Wing Chow, who also understands traditional Disney or, you know, it's not that it's traditional, it's the spirit of Disney, I guess. You know, it's knowing where to innovate and knowing where to bring back something old and bring back something blue and borrowed and all of that. Right. Uh, something old, new, borrowed and blue. It's knowing, you know, how to orchestrate all of that and not just say we only want new things so then you propose new things and then they say we can't afford all that new design and you put new 
things and old designs. <laughs> uh, some of my colleagues will, you know, understand all of this. It gets better, believe me. This this is the nadir of the company, you know, <laughs> right. of the time period, and it's not imagineering. It's it's um, you know people that are at the time kind of controlling imagineering, I guess. Right. So um, we just had a lot of you know, um, like Disney Quest, <laughs> we went around and around a lot till we finally settled on the on the menu, and then John DeSantis and I went to work on. Um, Pressler, who I found to be reasonable um, when we would go in there and propose that we need to have Space Mountain and it needs to be Space Mountain. And, um, and you know, if we're going to call this attraction around the Adventureland River a jungle cruise, then there's a certain level of um, entertainment value that has to be in that. It can't just be a boat going around a river and there's an elephant somewhere, mm -hmm. you know, we've got to have, there's a certain number of those things um, that make it in a, you know, memorable and make it uh, worth coming back to. And I think we got just about everything, you know, we went in twice with increased scope <laughs> um, proposals and um and he, he, you know, now I think we should have asked for more, of course, but I don't know if he had more to give um, because he was under, you know, this was, again, it was the era of the strategic planning. So even the head of parks and resorts couldn't make their own decisions about their future. Mm -hmm. they, they, you know, could weigh in and they had a heavy uh, vote, but it was strategic planning that was kind of, you know, guiding this. And so um, I had a really good team. We had a really good team with Lori Coltrane and Kelly Ford and Skip Lang and, and Tim Delaney. I mean, you couldn't have done the Tomorrowland. That was his vision entirely. And um, one of the best stylistically, I think, um, that we ever did. You know, it's not retro, although there are some little, you know, accents of it. Um, here and there, but it was, it was an all new look. And um, so, you know, we were in some areas, we had to do something entirely new, like Tomorrowland and other areas, you know, we had to kind of balance that um, new spending, I guess, or extra spending for all new stuff with, you know, off the shelf, I guess you'd say, um, entertainment like the dark or like Woody the Pooh at the time and um, the jungle cruise because you know the molds for all of those animals exist and um, the designs for the boat and everything and we had Tarzan's treehouse and uh, a new thing called fantasy gardens and um, you know and then like Disneyland Paris we uh, had to work fast to add things once the park opened Right. But we eventually opened it, and um, and I think it's one of the most beautiful parks. I mean, it is what's there. I just always argued it, it, it needed to be more, and I always felt like I, they must think I'm the typical um, design diva who always wants more. And I, I, all I was trying to do was explain to them that this is, this 
the scope of this is not equivalent to the scope of Disneyland, even in 1965. Mm, right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I think they just didn't believe me and I didn't have the resources to be able to show them otherwise. So it's a little, you know, I hope I'm not sounding like, you know, sour grapes or anything, but it was well, just, no, I mean, I, I think, the... um, you know, to know that, okay. Um, I know what a six hour or a seven hour or an eight hour experience is. And so does everyone else who's gone to Disneyland twice. Um, and I know that this is a park that you <laughs> can do effectively in five or six hours and see the whole thing. And you can't have a park where you see the whole thing, you know? Mm-hmm. And but the thinking was, well, why would you create anything extra other than what you see? <laughs> and again, <laughs> I, oh my God, you know, these are MBAs that I'm talking to. They are, uh, you know, in principle, smarter than I am <laughs> in theory. Um, yet they don't get this business. Right. And, um, so it was it was hard, you know, conveying all of that. And sure enough, you know, we opened and, and people loved it, but said, "Okay, we've seen it." And so we had to scramble to open up new things. Yeah, well, I, I was going to say, I think your your opinion has been borne out by the fact that since it opened, there's been a constant drive to expand, yeah, and add add things. Then they're they're doing that right now as well. Yeah. And as you said, you know, you took a budget, your team took a budget that was insufficient, but managed to make a park. I I have not been, but everybody I know says it's just an absolutely gorgeous park. Yeah. Every, every square inch of what was created is, um, as good as Disneyland in some cases better, you know, um, but it has that Disneyland sense of intimacy and scale. Um, what it didn't have on opening day was the sense of exploration and discovery of wondering what's, you know, coming up to a choice of two or three ways to go. And um, I wonder what's on the left. Well, let's check out what's on the right. It was kind of a clockwise or counterclockwise journey that you'd take and you'd see everything. And, you know, I didn't know what argument to use with MBAs <laughs> about that, you know, why, why that doesn't work you know it's not part of the magic it's not part of the um the dna and so fortunately um you know it wasn't long after the opening that bob Iger took um charge of the company and dissolved that strategic planning group mm-hmm. that was a happy day for that everyone was happy, i guess I, I mean I, I, a lot of those guys i knew and you know um, appreciated or liked, um, but as a as a group, they were formidable, and and it was just little old me, you know, saying, "I think my feet should be sore at the end of the day." You know, <laughs> <laughs> why would you want your feet sore at the end of the day? Well, because it meant that I was there for eight hours, not three or four. <laughs> right. So, uh, so yeah. So bye bye strategic planning. Yeah. Well, in Hong Kong, were there any special considerations that you had to put into building in such a unique, it was a unique physical environment. It was a unique cultural environment. What was different about building there than in the other places that you've built? 
Well, similar to Paris, there's so many things that are the same, and then there's just enough things that are different to throw you off, right? Mm, um, yeah. But, you know, weather is a huge consideration out there. So if you think it rains in Florida, I have news for you. <laughs> it does rain in Florida, but it rains like three times as much in Hong Kong. And wow. it can also have these, um, you know, uh, eight inches in two hours kinds of scenarios where it dumps. And the, the whole city is engineered to take these huge rain dumps. So as you, as you drive around, you see all of these culverts that are cut into the landscape and hillsides. And you don't realize underneath you are huge, huge, you know, um, drainage culverts. That, and what's amazing is I watched when there was a tsunami, not a tsunami, a monsoon warning. And one came in and did this just giant dump and everyone stay in your houses and everything. And I could see through the windows, just these waterfalls everywhere. They're organized waterfalls, which is what's amazing. Sometimes they, you can kind of tell cause there'll be in a concrete, um, you know, kind of a, a containment or culvert, but other times it's just wild water on rocks, but it's all controlled. It's all managed. And an hour later you go out and everything's dry. You know, the sun's come out and there's no flood anywhere. You know, here in Cal Southern California, it rains an inch and it's like a disaster. <laughs> yeah, exactly. uh, everyone's running into everything. The freeways are they got water, you know. Um, so so there was that um, just kind of civil engineering um, thing to keep in mind. And. You know, but in in terms of taste and well, I when I left the project, we were still kind of in the um, state of discovery. You know, really understanding and discovering what um, what people um, prefer and what they don't or what they like, don't like. Um, because you get kind of a you can get a different audience the first year or two, and then it settles into kind of another audience, especially if you're trying to attract more people from the mainland. But my recollection is that we were concerned that they, um, I mean, I heard they wouldn't eat chocolate or candy um, that, you know, instead we had to have a moon, moon, moon cake, moon cake shop instead of a candy shop. Um, you know, they weren't big on pastries. Uh, they don't like to sit next to each other. They don't like to be scared. They won't participate in an um, audience participation moment in a stage show or along the parade route, all of that was dispelled pretty quickly after we opened. Now, maybe that was more of a Hong Kong and expat audience at the time. Uh, but I remember thinking, why did we go to all the trouble to do this and that um, <laughs> in some of the areas? Because <laughs> basically, I mean, basically people are the same, but yes, there are some nuanced um, differences. And, and we also, here's where it's kind of, you know, important to have some historical experience, I guess, or mileage behind your belt. Um, because there was this, um, paranoia right after we opened that, um, people weren't going on Space Mountain. They weren't going in Philhar Magic. 
and other attractions that you couldn't tell what the attraction was by looking at it. So, you know, where have we had this problem before? Walt Disney World with Space Mountain, <laughs> Disneyland with Space Mountain. Um, I don't know if we had the problem in Paris uh, because we had the big cannon on the outside of it. But, um, you know, people weren't, A, they weren't understanding it was a roller coaster. And, um, you know, so some people who were getting sick or whatever, no one was getting hurt, but, um, you know, the people who didn't know that um, it was a, a roller coaster in the dark fundamentally, and they'd come off sick and they'd complain. Uh, or they didn't know what it was entirely. I mean, there wasn't a very long line for it until, you know, you have to give it a couple of years. I remember I was at Disney World on opening day and I remember no line. Well, there was no line for hardly anything except the Skyway had a big line because everyone could see it. Oh, we want to go on that. So yeah. it was actually a line for the Skyway. And the second time I went there, I remember noting that, that I'm walking onto the, still pretty much walking onto the Haunted Mansion, maybe waiting five minutes or 10 minutes, but there is now a half an hour line for the Skyway. And that happened in Paris too. So uh, a big line for the um, treehouse. Everyone could see the treehouse and they could see mm. people going into the treehouse, but no line for pirates. Well, part of the problem is pirates has three or four times the capacity as the treehouse. But I remember hearing the complaint, you know, about, um, about pe people don't know what's inside of these shows. Well, that's a Disney differentiator. You know, that's a good thing because that means we're not building big, ugly roller coasters all the time. I'm not against kinetics. I love kinetics, yeah. but I'm just saying, you know, give it a year or two <laughs> and people on their second visit will know what it is. But that first year or two, people are trying to get used to the park. They don't know what's in it. They don't know what these things are. And um, don't panic about, you know, believe me, people are going to wait. You know, you'll have lines for the roller coaster. Don't worry. <laughs> Yeah, it has to work its way into the culture. Exactly. To understand what these things are. So that's um, that's some of the Hong Kong story. That makes me, oh, I was going to ask you a question about, since you worked on, you know, Disneyland Paris is such a different beast than Hong Kong. And, uh, you know, you spoke some of it with Space Mountain. How do you approach that variability uh, between attractions, you know, you set the menu and you say, well, I want a space mountain or, I mean, especially a jungle cruise is a great example in Hong Kong of like, we're going to do jungle cruise. What does that mean? You know, how, how do you adapt it, but keep the core of what it is in your mind? I mean, what, what is the rubric for you of that kind of thing? You know, I hate to say it, but it's just kind of an intuition I mean, there's a way to right. metric, you know, to use metrics to help you make these decisions. Um, but the metric people will tell you, <laughs> yes, you know, you should use metrics, not emotion and not, you know, personal opinion. <laughs> and yet a lot of the metrics people are using their personal opinions <laughs> I, right. Uh, right. because yep. there is a zone of kind of, a gray zone of the unknown um, in every one of these. So um, it's not science and it's not art. It's somewhere in between the two. And it's has become um, 
a very long process now of determining what the menu is with lots and lots and lots of people and their opinions um, involved. And so um, it's not as fun as, you know, sitting around, hey guys, let's, you know, what would you like to see? What would you like to see? <laughs> that, which was Disneyland Paris, basically, with the operator's um, approval because the operators had, you know, the, the background and the knowledge um, to know, you know, a stinker from a winner and, uh, or how, you know, a stinker could be changed to become a, a winner. So, um, so it was not a long process on Paris. I mean, there's always a little bit of change, uh, you know, last minute ads and things like that. Um, but every project I worked on subsequent to that, the menu became a, um, a long, long, arduous process with seemingly no um, real science, I guess, to help uh, help you decide. Is that like a corporate structure thing? Well, you know, everyone gets a vote now. It's part of the mm-hmm. part of the issue. So that's a good thing and a bad thing. All these all these kind of new ways of doing business are double edged swords. And so there's good things about that, and then there's you know not good things about that. So uh, I just know that um, you know we have access to all of the. Um, metric data about the attractions, you know, the u- utilization and um, capacities and performance and maintenance costs and all of that. But at the end of the day, it's like, it's, it's like creating a four course meal, I guess. It's the, it's the gestalt of the whole of, of what you're offering, not any one particular thing. It's mm-hmm. the, it's the overall offering. Cause it'd be easy to, come up with what you think are is a good um, variety of attractions, a good offering, and then realize someone will bring up, yeah, but these are all, um, you know, thrill attractions, or these are all, um, you know, kiddie attractions, or these are all attractions that only appeal to guys, or, you know, and you look at it, suddenly you go, oh, yeah, yeah, you're kind of right about that. So you make some adjustments. Um, but it, you know, it, it is difficult. It's, and, and, you know, it, it's even kind of, it's so funny that kind of how things have changed with the, with the IP idea and everything, because years ago we would love to have IP and we were trying and trying and trying to get any IP. And now, um, it's not that it's IP. It's that again, you kind of go through some funny arguments about, I'm trying to remember, well, even Mulan to me, it was kind of like, why are, aren't we doing, you know, a Mulan anything? (laughs) And, uh, and some weird reason comes up that you kind of discover may not really be, maybe, maybe it wasn't thought out all the way. Mm. Um, You know, maybe because there was an issue in China doesn't mean that there's going to be an issue in Hong Kong. Um, You also have to look at things like how did a film do, post, um, you know, post opening or post, uh, post its first run, how is it doing? How, how is it selling through in merchandise, DVDs, yeah. all of that? Is there, if you see, a, you know, a sweep up, that means that people really like it, despite the fact that they may not have seen it or that they, 
had mixed emotions about it or they liked it but didn't want to see it a second time, for some reason they're liking it more over time. So you have to look at those um, aspects too. And um, yeah, it's just funny, you know, it's, it's, it can become very frustrating because the hot, 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 hot thing that you got to rush to do in two years, they're going, well, why are we doing this when we have this other hot thing? Yeah, right. <laughs> the danger. Yeah. And yeah. It, yeah. <laughs> well, for before we leave Hong Kong, for American audiences who may not know the park uh, very well, what are some elements of it that you're especially proud of? Well, you know, the f- most important thing to do to get a park on opening day is get the environment and the place itself, a place that you want to return to. You know, if it doesn't have that thing that you imagine in your head when you're having a bad day or, you know, your dreary everyday office life or whatever it may be, and you're just dreaming of, um, you know, escape, it's got to be more than a rocket ride through outer space, you know, at high speed. It's got to be more than blasting um Martians and space aliens with a laser gun. And it's got to be more than, you know, um, hippos. (laughs) Those are all important elements, but it's the place where you're going to talk with your friends at lunch, you know, and, um, you know, it's the parade. It's the, it's all of these different things, but you've got to get the space and the place because that you're, you're going out of your way to go to an extraordinary place. And you, you know, you could actually build a really extraordinary attraction in an ordinary place. You could put um, Buzz Lightyear in a mall. Mm-hmm. You could put Space Mountain in a big box building when Best Buy's, you know, goes out of business. <laughs> <laughs> so it's the place, you know. I think of I think of this restaurant in Adventureland that um, Skip Lang and his team worked on. That's just, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's actually the kind of the bazaar at Adventureland that turned into a restaurant, but not exactly the bazaar. Um, and it's the landscape and the foliage and the, when you're sitting there, you do not feel like, you know, where you are. You totally feel like you're in a, another place. And, um, that's what's so important to get at the opening. And that's what we didn't get for that um, Paris studio. You know, it was not an extraordinary place. It had really good attractions, has really good attractions, and it's becoming an extraordinary place. But it wasn't an extraordinary place when it opened. And there were parts of California Adventure that were not an extraordinary place. So you got to get the extraordinary place part of it right. And, um, and then, you know, of course you have to have, if you're charging admission, (laughs) which you are, you do have to have a certain amount of, um, you know, attraction entertainment business going on, but I'm really proud of, you know, the base park that we opened up there and, um, you know, despite some formidable odds, um, it, it, you know, the lighting is beautiful everywhere. I remember just walking around that park at night um, 
a month or two before opening. And as lights would come on, you know, um, on board, they'd, you know, finish up this area and that area. It would be exciting every night to see which new area, you know, will be lit up for the first time. Um, you know, Tomorrowland is incredible at night, you know, it's just beautiful, uh, with neon and, um, just rich, rich lighting. And even the castle had, you know, richer lighting than anyone could do up to that time, because this was finally when, um, LEDs could be used as a theatrical lighting source, Mm -hmm. not as utilitarian, you know, kind of a thing. And I remember my ears pricked up when I heard we're going to use LEDs to light the castle until the lighting designer, you know, took me out and showed me and, and I was extremely comfortable with like, wow, this is going to be beautiful. All the beautiful tertiary colors and you can program it to change slowly, you know, over the night. That's wonderful. Uh, Main street was beautiful. Um, I mean, I, I can't think of an area that, you know, I would groan walking past <laughs> or, yeah. um, you know, or going into. So everything was just done. Everything that was done was done superbly. And we just needed more, and now there's more. Yes, that's and great. Joe, uh, Joe Lancistro did a really great job uh, after me, um, you know, with uh, Grizzly, Grizzly Mine, and of course the um, the attraction whose name I can't remember, along with the theater in Hollywood. Oh, Mystic Man. Mystic Man. <laughs> yeah. Okay, tomorrow I'm going to go see the doctor. well uh before you know we want to ask about your book but before we do um your book project your massive book project before we do you know you've done a lot of presentations you've done a lot of podcasts you've talked about your career a lot is there any project of yours you don't get asked about that you'd like to draw attention to well um people don't know i worked on splash mountain and people don't know i worked on um, Disney Quest, and, pre- and most people don't know I worked on Rock and Roller Coaster. Uh, not the finished result, but the um, the proposal for it, getting it kind of to its first um, concept meeting. I don't know, there's something in there. Oh, you know, I worked on Walt Disney World. I was the art director for Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom for several years between. 88 and 91 or 92. And so a lot of the changes that you saw happen in that park, like the new color schemes for Fantasyland around 1990. And I had this, I I couldn't, you know, I I had this thing about the concrete benches that were in Adventureland that looked like the concrete benches that were in Tomorrowland. So um, I had a thing about that. So we, and, and Eisner agreed and um, I mean, I, we had this walkthrough with Michael and I, I don't think Frank was on that, but it was with Michael and with Sully and the things that he was like picking up on was like amazing. And there, there were a lot of the things that were in my head that I'm like, I don't know if anyone besides, I don't know if this bothers anyone besides me, uh, but there was, you know, there was some ugly lighting and, you know, I think I, I uh, write it off to, you know, the last month or two in 1971 where they were in a hurry and they needed to get things done. And then you open it and then everyone loves it. And there's really not incentive to go back and and fix some of those things because why? Mm -hmm. Uh, But uh, Michael wanted to 
um, change some of those. So we came up with this big punch list uh, wow. of things. And so um, I'm trying to, oh, the, the <laughs> probably no one knows that I designed the big toll plaza, the main toll plaza going to the Magic Kingdom when they redid that in 1990. Yeah. Uh huh. Wow. All right. Well, yeah, it was um, the, the final drawings for it were done by iTech, but I did the concept and the colors for it and did the approval of it. And uh, that, you know, that's kind of funny. No one thinks, no one associates me with any, uh, generally with Walt Disney World stuff, unless it's Epcot right. um, imagination. Right. But whatever, um, whatever those aesthetic improvements that were made in the, uh, in the, late eighties and early nineties. I worked on those. Very cool. Interesting. Yeah. We need to talk about this, uh, wed history you're working on. It seems like several projects, uh, now you kind of had the archeology span stuff, but one of the ones you're working on is a book about the kind of hidden figures of wed, if you will, the people who, uh, don't get as much credit. And I'm so glad you're working on this because, you know, so many people get, uh, there's just a few names that yeah. get thrown around over and over again, but so many people that worked on these things. Uh, was there one particular Imagineer that started you down this path uh, to be more interested in this, or is it more your experience? No, it's, it's a very circuitous um, tale about how I got to this particular book because I was proposing another mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and, doing research for another idea that was archaeology, you know, Disneyland kind of based, which I'm still hoping to do at some point. But in the course of researching that came across, started discovering um, untold wed history, basically, um, or forgotten history. And, uh, and thought, you know what? I might be the only person that could connect some of these dots, you know, um, with the few names that I recognize and the, um, but with the knowledge of some of the earlier projects and some of the earlier things, the archeology span of Disneyland book was put on hold. Um, and I was asked by another publisher to look at, <laughs> um, the uh, archeology span of new Orleans square, just mm -hmm. that. So I'm at the archives, I'm researching that, but I keep coming up with new names and new revelations about people who are working on certain things. And I just thought, you know what? Someone needs to get into the old, old history of WED. I, did, I just realized what had happened really was that WED moved um, to Glendale in 1961 and basically shifted staff somewhat. So the original Imagineers who were at the studio were 90% um, draftsmen or sketch artists. And the draftsmen and sketch artists were also being borrowed by the live action film group, um, the live action film art department, which was new at the studio. It, was only formed in like 1957. So the first films, um, minus 20,000 leagues, but sort of 20,000 leagues, the first sets that were done 
for Disney films and Disney TV shows were done by Imagineers. Oh, wow. Okay. The backlot was designed by Disney Imagineers. And then they brought over a professional film art director. There, and there already were uh, very skilled art directors there, like Marvin Davis. Well, I'm, you know, I'm reading all of this stuff. I'm, I'm, it's, it's suddenly a light bulb goes off in my head that all of the people that I've ever asked questions about the early days of WED were never in the early days of WED. <laughs> they were at WED beginning in 1961 or 62 when it was in Glendale. Now, I didn't ask the right people. You know, I should have asked. I never had a conversation like this with John Hench or with Claude. Um, and it may not have made much of a difference because I'm finding out kind of psychologically what happens in the human brain when you worked in one location for a little bit and then moved over to another location and you worked in that location four times longer than you worked mm -hmm. in the first location. It's just like magnetic tape. You, you overwrite your earlier memories about who was there and what was there and where you were. Right, right. And so, I mean, I asked people before I know I've asked people who were there <laughs> um, not maybe there the whole time, but you know, might've been there for a year or two, like in 1959 or 1960 um, where was the wed office or where was wed located when it was at the studio? And I would get the same answer. Oh, there was no particular location. It was just, you know, everyone had a different office in the animation building or in the machine shop or in the ink and paint building. And everything was, you know, they made some stuff in the machine shop and some other stuff on some of the sound stages, but it was not really an organized thing or place. And that's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> there was an office <laughs> and it was centralized. And, um, and there was a, you know, a dedicated staff and there was kind of an elastic staff that went back and forth between the films. But there's a very definite early history of WED that just seems to have been forgotten. So if you go back to those people with that information, they go, oh yeah. <laughs> so you can't kind of rely on just cold asking, right. you know, questions. Um, like that. So I'm discovering, I mean, you know, this is just becoming clearer and clearer with every visit to the archives and every additional dive that no one has really documented um, the early days, meaning that, you know, when they were at the studio, but also between then and, and the opening of Walt Disney World, actually even between then and the, and the advent of um, internal newsletters mm -hmm. that document, you know, things, events, people. Um, so the memory basically up to about 76 is really um, yeah. dodgy. You know, you can ask six different Imagineers who were there at the time and you'll get six different answers and you don't get clarity until the newsletters <laughs> kind of show up. Uh, I'm not taking it to 76 or 77. I'm taking it to 71. Um, so there's a lot of anecdotal stories that you get um, and that you've heard over and over between 61 and 71, um, but not very many photos or, you know, where did these people sit? How did they, who sat next to them? How did that 
whole interplay work? Did the office setup influence the the way they worked or what they worked on? And um, so these, these are some of the things you can't get answers for. And I started seeing slowly, you know, piece by piece, puzzle piece by puzzle piece, a, a whole different picture beginning to kind of develop in front of me um, of almost like a lost Imagineering. <laughs> Not so much once they were in Glendale, although quite a bit of that. I mean, there's virtually no photos inside the Sonora building, for example. Well, there are a lot of them. You just have to know where to look and they don't belong wow. to Disney. So, um, <laughs> so the, you know, the plot thickens, all this stuff. Um, you know, there's all these collections all across the country um, that have some of these photos or connect some of these dots that haven't been documented officially by Disney. Yeah, that's been one of the interesting parts of, you know, watching from a distance of you working on this over the last few years is, you know, all the different archives you've been to, all the different places you've had to look, um, places you wouldn't think of to, to look for these things at first. Yeah, um, and, and lots of places still to, um, except that I don't know if I will. I mean, I've, I, <laughs> I'm anxious to get the first volume out. Um, and I think, you know, that there's the possibility of, you know, coming out with second and expanded printings. Um, because this could, this research could go on forever for one thing. Um, there's still folks around from that, that go back to 1954, 55, wow. 56, they're still around. Um, and you know, so if they left in 56, they don't remember much. Mm -hmm. It's a blur, but if they left in, you know, 1960 or 61, um, their memory is a little bit better of some of the people and some of the things. And, um, so there's still people to interview. <laughs> I, I've got more than enough information at this point to fill the quota, I guess, if you will, of pages. But, um, uh, I, there's also the feeling that I should get it out because people may know yes. some of these other people. Believe me, you're, you're going to uh, run into people who go, you know what? I'm related. I, I didn't, you know, this, that's my uncle. He never told me I, that he worked at Imagineering because it wasn't mm -hmm. called Imagineering for one thing. <laughs> um, and, you know, they thought that they were just grunt draftsmen for this amusement park. That was, you know, literally what they thought they were doing. They were, they were between films or they were laid off mm -hmm. at MGM or Fox. There's a lot of surprises, by the way. So, you know, you hear about the two or three guys that came from Fox and they each brought, you know, two or three people from Fox. And, and those are the people. If you have deeper information about WED, that's what you that's what you believe or you may believe. Um, but what's told is that Walt went to his animators and to his set designers and backlot builders to design Disneyland. And that's not true. There was no backlot. There were no sure. set designers except um, the ones that were done, that were brought over by Harper Goff for 20,000 leagues. And there were no set, there was no set design department. There was no art 
department because they weren't making live action films except right. for 20,000 right, leagues. Right, right. <laughs> and they had made some other live action films in England before that, but there was, uh, and occasionally there was a need to, to shoot something on a soundstage and bring in a set designer maybe for that um, brief moment in a, you know, in a package film or something. But other than that, they were not making, they were not purveyors of live action films. So therefore there was no back lot. There was a big 10 acre strip of undeveloped land back there. And um, so um, what happened was they hired Dick Irvine and Dick hired um, Marvin Davis and uh, Bill Martin, and they were from Fox. And they would hire, you know, as they, as they ramped up and staffed up, what they wanted was, um, were experienced um, draftspeople that had worked on film and new genres and period architecture. Well, the, and the, and the studios were laying people off during that era, if anything. So, um, 20, uh, 20th century Fox, I think was, um, was downsizing and MGM, I think was going to a, like a heavy downsizing where basically they were just keeping the um, handful of art directors and then everyone else, would be was being laid off and would be brought back um, piecemeal for each project, and MGM actually had an outplacement service that would send people when they were laid off from the art department after a film, they'd send them over oh, to Imagineering. Interesting uh, to Disney, yeah. So there were more people from MGM than there were from 20th Century Fox that first couple of years of Imagineering. Just... Uh, yeah. So it's, there, there were quite a few kind of like aha moments where it's like, okay, you know, um, and that was one of them, you know, and the fact that the backlot at Disney was not designed, you know, Disneyland was not designed by backlot designers. The backlot was designed right, by Disneyland yeah. designers who had backlot experience. But, um, well, the Western Street was done by a fairly young guy named Stan um, Jolly, Stan Jolly. And he was he was a draftsman for the first round of Disneyland, and then was identified as a keeper when Disneyland opened, and was starting to be groomed as an assistant art director. Um, and he worked on he actually designed he actually did all of the drawings of the buildings on Storybook Land after Ken Anderson had done his concept sketches. Then Stan Jolly was really kind of the um, show set designer slash production designer. Fred Jigger built all of those, but someone had to figure out how to place all of those. <laughs> um, and that's, you know, was something a little bit probably beyond the model builder's job is to know, you, know, you had to build foundations for each one of those buildings and basically civil engineer, even though it's a, a miniature, um, you know, miniature scenes, it, it had to be a lot of the same work that goes behind full-scale buildings had to go on behind those little buildings. They have utilities mm -hmm. and water and all of that. Mm. Well, so he was like the, um, the, because Ken wasn't there every day, he was really the de facto art director on that. And he, he you know, worked on a lot of early Disneyland projects and then ended up doing film. And I think the last project he worked on was Caddyshack. He was the art director on Caddyshack. Really? <laughs> There's a lot of that. There's a draftsman in there who's not there very long, and he becomes the art director on Back to oh, the Future. Wow. 
Um, and of course, there's yeah. Dean Tavalaris. That's the biggest one of all. Um, and, you know, he started as an apprentice. But there's another one I found named James Claytor. He was also a young apprentice. And um, he went on to be the head art director at Paramount for the TV shows and did all of our favorite TV shows in the oh, wow. 70s, 60s and 70s. Yeah. It's and designed the Paramount Ranch out here in the hills here. And um, it's just remarkable yeah, to me. There's a lot. I mean, almost every draftsman was either someone who was a veteran and had worked on Wizard of Oz and all these films of the past. And they were in their um, retirement years, nearing retirement, or they were up and coming um, apprentices that would go on to big right. things. It's just so interesting to me that despite the years and years of like scholarship that's gone into Disney history and these things, there's so much remains unexplored. Like you've tapped in a really rich vein of foundational undocumented history here. Yeah. Well, I think there's, there's a probably been a trend in the past that is hopefully changing with the younger, um, newer, authors to not accept the packet of information that's first plopped down before you. <laughs> um, you know, when you first do your research, you've got to look for the look in the places that are unexpected um, or kind of use a little bit of, you know, detective um, intuition to th think about where something, you know, what could be in this folder, this file, this photo book, that there's no clue whatsoever on the binder that it might be in there. And I started kind of getting into the groove of sniffing that out of like, okay, there's nothing here that tells me there's anything related to WED or Disneyland in here. Yet now I know there's probably going to be something in this book about it because Walt liked to take his um, all of his VIPs around. So there are um, either personally or have someone take them. This would be a movie star or a winner of a, of a dog food contest. And, um, <laughs> and they're taken around the studio and there's usually, you know, there's a photographer, if they're interesting enough, there's a photographer with them. And they go to, you know, they do the thing where they see the animators, they see the storyboard, they go to ink and paint, all the all of the Mr. Geographic stuff is the tour, is really the tour. And but they would also take them into the wed office. Not all the time, but sometimes. And so there's pictures of people who you don't know that in an in an office space that unless you knew. Um, unless you could tell by something that's on the wall, you wouldn't know that that's wed. It doesn't say wed enterprises, doesn't say Disneyland, doesn't say design office, doesn't say anything. And yet here it is in this book. And so there was a lot of stuff in those, you know, that was one kind of vein. Um, and uh, um, construction drawings are another vein and collections at other libraries are another vein. And, um, you know, and there's just these weird circuitous, um, you know, the George Harrell photo collection, that means nothing to me. 
that's a collection that's over at uh, USC mm-hmm. in the special collections. George Harrell. Who the hell is George Harrell? George Harrell was Walt Disney's personal photographer for a long time. He was a famous photographer, famous Hollywood glamour photographer. Um, shot beautiful black and whites of all of the stars back in the day. And, um, and he also sh- shot, um, you know, some Walt Disney photos, mostly in the 40s, in the 50s. So why would there be anything wed related, you know, in that? Um, well, for one thing, he was related to Walt circuitously um, through um, oh, wow. Lily's niece, Phyllis, was married to George Harrell. Holy smokes. Okay. So that's probably why Walt used him as his personal photographer, besides the fact that he was a great photographer. Um, but he also comes back from time to time um, to shoot, uh, you know, just, just kind of candid shots around the studio. And so he has shot a lot of the shots that you see, um, that you've seen um, of Walt around the early 60s um, in, in um I think in Chris Merritt's book, he's probably has a few shots of the dinosaurs being, you know, things like the dinosaurs being um, built. Mm. And, um, Mm -hmm. but he usually owned his photographs and then the studio would have to buy or indicate the photos that they wanted to keep. So, and this is the case with, you know, in a lot of situations is you've seen the subset. You haven't seen the entire set of photos. So, at um, right, right. at some of these collections and some of these university libraries, you'll find the other photos <laughs> that you haven't seen, and the other photos, you know, you um, you can kind of understand sometimes that you know they, these are not the hero shots, but they're the shots that show what the interior of the space looked like, or sometimes you know you yes. see a little clue yeah. of something in the corner, you know, being built or whatever. And um, so there ended up being quite, you know, um, quite a bit of information between these five or six universities that I um, have visited in their collections, to, enough to connect dots, let me put it that way. And, um, and, and one thing that I'm doing is I, if I'm not sure of the information, if I'm not able to kind of corroborate it um, via more than one, uh, if I'm not able to to verify it by using two or three different sources, then I'm going to say it appears, or you know, I'll I'll qualify um, the discovery. Um, I'm not going to say this is fact unless I've got like, okay, it's in the phone book. This person's in the phone book. There's a photo of this person there. Right. <laughs> he has signed a drawing here. So. Um, like, I would not have believed that about <laughs> Dean Tavalaris, uh, except I did interview him, so that helped. But um, if he had not been alive, and if I had not, um, you know, seen his name in the phone, on all the phone directories, and then also seen them on all these Disneyland drawings that he had done, I would not have believed that he had worked as much on it, because my boss, George Windrum, worked side by side with him in the 50s. And he also kind of gave me the impression wow. that, oh, he wasn't there. You know, he worked on a few things. And, uh, but George left, my boss left. 
So, and then came back in 63 and then Dean Tavolaris decided to stay back at the studio to work on film. So uh, I would have been under the impression just going by one point of view that um, Dean was there, but only worked on Disneyland projects for a couple of years. Not, he worked on almost every Disneyland project after it opened um, as one of the lead um, set designers, if you will, under the, you know, working under a, an art director. That's wild. Um, up through 62, at least. So even after Wed left and went to Glendale, Dean was working on the Haunted Mansion um, building, you know, the, uh, the structure, the mansion shell wow. building itself with uh, Marvin Davis. And uh, if you see, next time you watch Mary Poppins, look at the two art directors on it, mm -hmm. who are uh, Carol Clark and um, William Tunsky. They were Imagineers. <laughs> oh, okay. William Tunsky was also uh, being groomed to be uh, uh, an assistant art director, and art he became an art director. And Carol Clark was an old veteran going way back. He had already won an Oscar. And he was the one that Walt identified to be the um, head art director for the studio, for the films. But even Carol Clark would be borrowed to work on Haunted Mansion. He did, the, he did layouts for the walkthrough version of the Haunted Mansion. He also designed the big drum in the parade in 1962. Oh, wow. <laughs> yes. All right. Yes. Oh, yeah. Like, just, you know... Talk about range. <laughs> yeah, really. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah. And he did the, he designed the uh, walkthrough for the uh, Babes in Toyland. He and Bill Tunkey worked on the Babes in Toyland walkthrough in the Opera House. Oh, that's wild. So it's just very interesting. All these things that um, you didn't know. I, did, I sure as heck didn't know any of this. No. Uh, and yeah, and I really think it's that um, when you move a location, like I think back at Disneyland Paris and I, and I, all I remember is my last office. I can't really remember the iteration. I kind of remember the first office and I definitely <laughs> remember the last office, but all the iterations in between and the people in between, I, I don't remember. Yeah. It just kind of, you know, if together. I was reminded, I would. Yeah. But if people are asking me, you know, questions about them, I would like, Oh, I, I'm sorry. I don't, I don't remember that. Right. Well, it's a fascinating project and I'm really, really looking forward to it. Um, and I know a lot of other people are too. Uh, before we go, I've got two questions. We like to throw, we throw the floor open to our Patreon backers and uh, have two quick questions from Alan today. Uh, number one, he wants to know what is the biggest misconception or legend about wed that needs to be busted? Um, well, I think it's that first one that I, I mentioned that because I think it's in the benefit, you know, the, to the benefit of wed that um, Imagineers designed the back, the, the first two backlots. Anyway, the um, Zorro was designed. The Zorro sets were primarily designed by Marvin Davis, the same man who laid out Disneyland and the Western Street was primarily designed by Stan Jolly, who um, had 
four years of Disneyland WED work behind his belt before he went over to design the Western Street on the back lot. So um, you always hear that Walt turned to his set designers and backlot designers and animators um, to be the people to design Disneyland, to be the first wet Imagineers. When the fact is actually maybe four animators or five animators, and then you know the, the machine shop people there in the machine shop, and then the rest all came from other studios because there was no art department at Disney at the time. And it wasn't just 20th Century Fox and it wasn't just MGM, it was Warner Brothers. And there was someone from Desilu and hmm. someone from a local radio station and someone from a local TV station. And um, what they had in common was they, even if they were licensed architects, they had, if they were a licensed architect, probably what had happened was that they, um, during the depression, they had no business. And so they, the only um, need for architects in this area was at the studios and it was a big need. So if you were a good architect, you went to the studio, to a studio and, um, and you helped you know, design the back lots or whatever. And then some of them went back to their private practice and some of them stayed in film. Um, the second one would be that the castle at Disneyland, like the castle at Walt Disney World, um, had a major player that you've never heard of before um, behind the design of it. And not to take anything away from Herb Ryman, whose talents are uh, immeasurable, but I think even Herb would tell you the story. I mean, he kind of has told the story in a way. Um, that he didn't think it should look so much like Neuschwanstein. That people would, um, you know, as travel, as a travel industry, and people began traveling more and further away, people were going to end up going to Neuschwanstein and coming back to L.A. going, why did Walt build a copy of Neuschwanstein? Right. So, um, and Herbie, you know, was a big part of moving the main roof 180 degrees around. So, I mean, there's a lot of myth busting just starting with the castle. No, it is not designed after Nishwanstein. There is a, um, you know, a, a major uh, roof uh, facade that, and one turret that is um, evocative of Nishwanstein and has some stolen little, you know, or lifted or inspired details on it, but that's just the main tower and one side of one roof. The rest of it is a pr primarily a Loire Valley castle. Mm -hmm. And the architect on that was a guy named Roland Hill, who was an architect um, thrown out of business by the depression and thrown into the, you know, film set design. Oh. Uh, in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and then brought over by Harper Goff to work on 20,000 Leagues, and he did the set designs for the um, parlor, for the you know beautiful um, you know main room in the Nautilus. But even weirder than that, the story gets weirder. Walt Disney was in the war with Roland Hill with this guy. They were, they were both drivers, and Walt Roland Hill huh. became friends. And while they were out there, Walt noticed that uh, Roland Hill was always sketching all these monuments and old um, Gothic 
you know, cathedrals and buildings and um, castles. And so that was in Walt's head. And I guess they remained friends because when, so Ro Walt went back to the United States after the war and Rolling Hill stayed out there and um, went to university out there in both Paris and I think in Spain, if I have my information right, um, and got his architecture degree there, then came back to Hollywood and opened up um, an architecture business on Hollywood Boulevard in the late 20s, early 30s, and designed a few homes, one of which was just for sale um, that you could buy here. <laughs> and, um, and then the depression hit and he went to Warner Brothers, I believe. Oh, but before that, before he went, or maybe, maybe when he was freelancing with the studios, Disney remembered him because they were working on Snow White. And this is the first film that's, you know, I mean, the, besides um, The Old Mill, which had just come out before, this film was going for a certain, not photorealism, but it was going for a higher degree of uh, sophistication and realism than they had ever done. And they had never really, you know, done a castle in any of the cartoons other than just something off that's off in the distance. Mm -hmm. So now they need like, you know, a sense of authentic placemaking. And who do they get? They get Roland Hill to be, um, to do the concepts for Snow White's castle. Wow. And then he goes back, you know, and he goes to Warner Brothers and he's there at Warner Brothers until he goes to Disney to work on 20,000 Leagues. And then someone probably remembers his portfolio. Maybe it's Walt. Who knows who it was? Maybe it's Dick Irvine. But anyway, he ends up being the um, architect on the castle. And, and uh, a lot of the design was done by Marvin Davis previously. I would say he did the bulk of the design um, but to in order to de um to dial down the nishwanstein and dial up the loire valley that's what roland hill apparently brought to the table on that um, and did you know a lot of the hero pieces on that castle but he was the one who kind of had to supervise it and bring it all together and um and make suggestions about you know all the little details that uh um that would you know that you'd find in a real medieval castle like that wow well you may have just answered alan's second question his second question was what story or person should be known more but isn't and i think uh that no. certainly qualifies as well no, there's more yeah sam hamill sam hamill okay jacob samuel <laughs> jacob samuel hamill Okay, I think is the one to me that is um, turning out to be kind of the most interesting. I mean, Dean Tavolaris is too, and certainly Roland Hill, and certainly um, Ted Rich, who designed the castle in Florida. Uh, but Sam Hamill is this superhuman person that we've never heard of, except he does have a window on Main Street. Oh, okay. And Sam Hamill... I'm dying to really know more about him. You could Google him and it's a tough Google. He, it, not a lot comes up at first. So you have to kind of um, Google around. <laughs> but, and, and part of the problem is he's always J.S. Hamill or sometimes he's Jacob 
as Hamill. But when he's at Disney, he's Sam Hamill. <laughs> so it's almost like there's two hmm. different people. But he's not on the payroll. But he's with Disney until 1971 consistently. Um, he, he is an um, engineer. They're looking for an engineer for Disneyland. Hmm, seems like that would be a good thing to have, an engineer. We need an engineer. We've got one for structural. They're the, the, the structural engineers for the last soundstage that they built at the Disney studio <laughs> becomes the structural engineer for Disneyland. And they're good. You know, they're really good. Wheeler and Gray, you might have heard of them. And um, so that's good. We got a structural engineer, but we still need a mechanical engineer. We need an electrical engineer. We need a lighting designer. We need um, someone who knows these. We have waterfalls and a waterway system in the park. Um, and so they have a connection to this place in Ohio called Nella Park or Nila Park. I don't even know how to pronounce it. I never heard of it before. And uh, Nila Park is where light bulbs are invented. Oh, Did you know that? Okay. <laughs> All light bulbs, probably through the you know um, 70s or 80s, came from Nila Park, General Electric's uh, industrial park. Wow. Um, that was uh, some Edison connection. <laughs> um, and so everything from the carbon arc light to the Christmas light was developed and prototyped and tested at Nila Park. Okay. And so Disney had a connection somehow, or they knew about Nila Park, probably through pro film projection and that sort of thing. Probably a Byworks, you know, had a connection to Nila Park. So they go to Nila Park, they call Nila Park um, to the top. They go to the top uh, R&D guy. Do you have any recommendations for a lighting guy? Um, for Disneyland, for our little Disneyland project. And the guy goes, I've got a guy who can not only do your um, lighting design, he can do all of your electrical, he can do your mechanical, he can do your little waterfalls, he can do your big waterfalls, he can do your air conditioning and heating and all of that. He's a brilliant guy. His name is Jacob Samuel Hamill. <laughs> and he's there in Los Angeles. So they bring him in. And this guy's got this incredible, um, already by that time, or he has an incredible resume. He's a very kind of like conservative, horn rim glasses, uh, no nonsense um, kind of guy. He's like kind of like uh, Bob Matheson, but Bob Matheson always had a smile. You know, and this guy's <laughs> like very like, Meh, you know, uh, he probably smiled too, but the pictures, he's very serious. And, you know, he should be, he has, he's a, he's a licensed engineer. And before the, this, he, um, well, he gets out of engineering school and his first job is a big job. He designs this um, or helps design and does the layout and does the electrical for Jones Beach in New York, which again, I don't know what Jones Beach is, but I, you know, I read about it. I'm like, oh, that's a big deal. Mm -hmm. Everyone in New York knows what Jones Beach is. Um, and it, it's this, you know, kind of day resort kind of a place that it's more than just a beach. It's got little pavilions and, and things in it and architecture. And um, so it's a big deal. And he does that with, what's his name? You know, what's his name? Moses, Robert Moses. Oh, 
Okay. Wow. Robert Moses oh, okay. is just this up and coming guy. And so is Jacob Samuel Hamill for that matter. And they do Jones Beach. Wow. And then uh, Moses remembers him in 1939 and says, can you come over here to this World's Fair that we're doing? Um, we have a project for you. We need you to light the parasphere and the unisphere or whatever it was called. <laughs> the, what was it called? The Trilon. The trilon. The Trilon and the Parasphere. Because those are really tall. And how do you light them? So, um, so he does that. And then he moves to Los Angeles and he uh, does things and then somehow gets onto this Disneyland project. And he works with Harper Goff to figure out how they're going to do Schweitzer Falls. (laughs) And he works with Harper Goff again on the Jungle Cruise to figure out how we're going to keep boats on the track. How are these, how are we going to keep these boats? How are we going to make these boats where they can, you know, have motors, but not drift off, um, but be able to unlink, you know, and go backwards into a, uh, off, off a spur. Cause that's the thing. Right. Um, and so, well, let me put it this way. It wasn't as easy. Like I would just think that's an easy thing, but apparently it wasn't. So he invents the underwater bogey. And then he worked with Walt on the um, waterway system that circulates clockwise around the park. You know, that um, goes from the low point rivers of America, gets pumped up to uh, storybook land and then gets pumped to the um, Tomorrowland Lake at the time. And then down to the castle moat and across Frontierland and through Adventureland and back to the Jungle Cruise. He he engineers that. Well, he's also the civil engineer for the whole park. He's a, his his he's the signature on all of the civil engineering drawings um, that include where the which trees are going to get cut, you know, and all the cut and fill within the park. Uh-huh. And even though he was capable of it, he had to hire uh, another guy because of time to do all of the soil analysis and water analysis. And, you know, because he had what kind of soil do you have to bring into this site in order to have anything except orange trees live in it. So he does that. Then he does all the lighting drawings for the park and his company does all of the electrical plans and the HVAC. And then, and then, and then he stays, he's always on hand. He never joins the company, but he's so important that he, that Walt moves him to 234 Buena Vista street, the next block up (laughs) so that he's always right there. They can go to him. He could come to them. um, And drawings can be walked across the street back and forth with immediacy. That's how, um, how important he was. And in fact, I, I don't know this, but Disney might have even at the time subsidized the building of that building because they uh, do a custom building for him there on Buena Vista. And that's where his office remains for the rest of his practice. Wow. And then there's more. But, you know, he works on the Haunted Mansion stretching rooms. He works on the submarine uh, patent, does a patent with Joe Fowler on the submarines. He's involved in every weird. Oh, of course, he's involved in the Rainbow Caverns. Oh, yeah. He's uh, he's involved in almost every weird kind of, you know, thing. Like, how do you do this? We need a special kind of engineer for this. But it's always Sam Hamill 
it's always Wheeler and Gray for structural and Sam Hamill for just about everything else. And then in 1964, <laughs> uh, Moses brings him back to the World's Fair. And so I've got even more for you to do for this one. I want you to do the entire exterior area development lighting package. Oh, wow. Um, for the fair and the Unisphere. So all, all the area lighting. And I recall you are very good with fountains and that sort of thing. So we have this big, big fountain called the Fountain of the Planets that's going to have fireworks and um, dancing waters and all this stuff. And Hamill designs that fountain and everything that goes along with it, including the basically the control, the audio animatronic style uh, system of controls for it. Wow. Because um, it was run off of a, a, a tape or a, um, some combination of a, of a master tape and what do you call those data cards? Mm -hmm. So, you know, he figures that all out and he works on the progress land and he works on, I don't know if he worked on the others, but I know he worked on progress land. Oh, so he was big Sam yeah. Hamill. We've never heard of him. Never heard of him, but you will. That's that man. That's incredible. And so much more to uncover in, <laughs> in the future. And I'm there's sure. more. And but, there's more. You know, again, I always try to keep myself earthbound and, um, grounded you know it could just be us 10 people who are interested but no, we'll, be we'll find out maybe maybe 15 <laughs> we'll see we'll see <laughs> well tom i can't thank you enough for this sort of magical mystery tour you've taken us on um <laughs> yes. uh, it's been really incredible and uh, thank you so much for your time and for i mean the work you put in to uncover all this stuff That wraps up our Progress City Town Hall with Tom K. Morris. Tom was very generous with his time. Very generous. And we really thank him for taking part. Jeff, that was that was a lot of info to download. Yeah. It's amazing. We took Tom's trip from the early 70s all the way through, you know, almost to now. And then uh, we go way back. Um, to the fifties. So I feel like I've been in a DeLorean just cruising all over the place. But yeah, like you said, we thank Tom for his time. You know, Tom delayed dinner for us. He uh, <laughs> did all kinds of things. So we, we really do appreciate uh, these interviews are just an incredible chance to find out all kinds of things that you would have never known. And Tom is so good at knowing uh, what to throw in, even things that you have not asked about. So, because he is a historian yeah. himself. He is, and just knows more off the top of his head than just about anybody I can think of. Yes. And it's, as someone who is bad with names and places, and, you know, I know where to look things up, but can't necessarily pull it off the top of my head. His ability to do so puts me in awe. So, respect. Uh, I, I, yeah, much respect. And I really, really can't wait for his book. It's going to be very exciting. So now that our fantasy land escapades have come to an end, Jeff, mm -hmm. uh, where, where should we head next? 
Well, now we're back at the hub. Uh, I'm going left, man. Just going left. And we're going to head to the wilds of Adventureland. A land that is has a very interesting history at Walt Disney World, as you will find out if you listen to our episodes. Absolutely. Yeah, I feel like we've done things out of the natural order of things because my inclination always is to turn left. Go oh, to Adventureland, come down Main Street, go to Adventureland. So now we're finally making it over to Adventureland. There's going to be a lot to talk about. And we are only able to do that thanks to our Patreon members. Patreon uh, has allowed us to do four episodes this month, which is very exciting. It also allows us to do our monthly live chat event where we do a slideshow related to that month's topic. Have a little video, maybe, whatever we can find that's interesting. And just have a little chat with our friends. And it's a lot of fun. So if you're interested in joining us and getting some other neat extras, just head to patreon.com slash progresscityusa. You can also find us at podcast at progresscityusa.com. Drop us with a line. Let us know what you think about the shows. If you have any questions, if you have any comments or memories, we'll do another mailbag one of these days. You can also find us online on Twitter. I'm at progresscityusa. Jeff is at Jeff G. Crawford. And you can get in touch with us there. Just let us hear. We're happy to listen to any feedback you might have. And, of course, if you choose to give us a review on your podcast platform, we'd appreciate that, too. Get the word out there. And so, with that, any any other thoughts before we leave the land of fantasy, Jeff? Uh, I have enjoyed uh, reliving uh, my memories in Fantasyland and hearing about Tom's you know trip as a youth. So... I've really enjoyed this. I, you know, don't, you know, Fantasyland is probably not my top choice of land I will go to first as a, as a guest, but uh, it's very, very special to me. So I've enjoyed it. Right. It's really, I feel it's put me in touch with my Fantasyland roots, the memories of That's yesteryear. Right. That's right. And uh, reminded me of a lot of things I haven't thought about in a while exactly. and uh that i really really miss a lot of things yes. that i miss so yes. it's been fun we hope you enjoyed it too and we hope you'll join us next month for adventure land uh, we'll take a true life adventure of our very very own so without further ado from all of us to all of you have a great day and we'll see you next time